Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house that's right we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got sky riders now. now does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're in sight clear west turkey national ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta So I have a great idea for how we can raise some money for the podcast. Right. <laughs> no, no, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. You know how every now and then you'll see there'll be like a, a – a, a, we'll do – I don't even want to say this out loud. I thought this would be a great way of opening the podcast. But naked – naked. Uh, we, we need uh, a calendar of us naked or in skivvies or something like that, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How long did you think of about this? <laughs> I got the idea from this outfit out in, uh, let's see now, where are they, David? They're uh, uh, the Antique Airplane Club of Greater New York. Yeah, who and what, and put they together do? the calendar pilots without pants, yeah. which would be uh, Pilot Sans trousers in French, maybe? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So, uh, so, so, okay, are they wearing <laughs> shorts? I mean, are they wearing. You know, they're not. They're, not suits, they're, not, they're just not wearing anything. Uh, I, I, I just want to clarify the situation. Anything. Well, now, David, I haven't actually seen one of these calendars. I saw their little promotional video. Their little sort of jokey pro- pro- promotion. It's really early in the morning, folks. Promotional video, and uh, and only one guy in that whole video even appeared to be without clothes, um, and he was having way too much fun with the whole thing towards the end. But uh, mostly it was like, and and this is like, you know, so imagine your your average, your typical antique airplane club, you know, it has a tendency to skew to the older age demographics, if you get my drift. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And so they were talking to all these older guys about whether they would appear in the in the calendar. So, David, did you actually ever see the calendar? Uh, I looked around and found some pages portrayed uh on the web, and the video has pages from the calendar interspersed in it. You know, after like Mister January showing up with his uh, with his uh, important parts partially hidden by a white silk scarf and the lower wing of an early early steerman, I believe it is. R- really, and, and so these are like like older gentlemen. Well, not all of them, are, you know, older being a relative thing. I was, oh, okay. uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You know, uh, Mr. Mr. January 2012, they're already working ahead here. Mr. January 2012 uh, appears to be, you know, maybe in his uh, early 30s, middle 30s. And let, thankfully, let, the camera has not cut lower than his, uh, much lower than his dog tag. So now, have they been doing me, this for a while? I'm sorry, Jeb. Go ahead. Me, let, among, let me be among the first of us to go on record noting just how wrong this all is. <laughs> well, it, it, uh, I've seen plenty of calendars, uh, airplane calendars, uh, and other calendars of uh, with young, well, not always young women. Uh, we've seen firemen calendars and, exactly. and policemen calendars. So why not, you know, pilots without pants? I mean, sure. Hey, no, no, e- no, e- no, no rights for aviators. It's, it's the older uh, quotient here that has me um, disturbed. Hey, older folks are. Uh, oh, never mind. I don't want to go there. <laughs> no, no, Jack, please share. Nothing. I, I was talking with someone who has, has experience in the nursing home industry recently, and he was telling me interesting stories about the lifestyles. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, all right. Well, so I guess maybe even this that is even that is TMI territory. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and it's so, a video. The video itself is, is, is a fun 20 minutes. Yeah. And it's just it, listening to these folks talk about how they do it and making fun of one another and and uh, uh, teasing one should, another. Maybe they should do a podcast. A video, uh, a video podcast. Right? Well, video I was going to say, if you wanted to do this in video, you'd uh, you'd just need the uh, the little disclaimer, uh, like Mister September. He's he's naked atop a ladder, shielded by the front of his J three. 
Mr. September. There's something. Yeah, it's about. I think that's the episode title, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, in this case, it could be Mr. October. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Welcome, folks, to episode 209 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode really early in the morning on Saturday, October 9th, 2010. And uh, joining <laughs> me here in the virtual hangar, a couple of good friends. First of all, Dave Higdon's out there uh, joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you doing this morning? Well, other than the shock and amazement to the eyeball system of seeing naked old men with airplanes, uh, doing okay. Yeah, I guess that'll open your eyes, won't it, huh? It's, yeah, and, and and at this time of day, it's not lining kugels, it's lining coffees. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and also here in the virtual hangar is Jeb Burnside, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How you doing, Jeb? I'm fine. I'm I'm I I didn't look at this video that we just were discussing, and and I, 20 minutes is is way too much of my life to to uh, to expend on something like that these days. Um, but I just want to verify for the record that none of these senior pilots are polishing their spinners in, in any of this. Oh, <laughs> whoa. Okay. <laughs> David. <laughs> Don't cut off my bike. No, no, no. Don't do it. David, we, uh, let's see now. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm speechless. Um, Bird on a wire, David. Bird on a wire. What is this? Is this some sort of radical new way of uh, of doing the landing flare or something like that? What? Uh, it's uh, some researchers. And where were these guys from again? They're working on uh, creating uh, aircraft capable of maneuvering to a what I would call a stand up landing in my hang gliding days. Uh huh. You know how a bird comes into a tree branch or a telephone wire and flares to a complete stop, looking down at that target and then touching it, landing on it, zero forward airspeed when they touch down. And they're not helicopters. Right. So these guys are working on uh, aircraft that can do the same thing. Now, I would say right up front that uh, one, one of the great uh, fun weekend diversions of flying hang gliders was we'd put a, a $5, we'd all pitch in a $5 bill, put it under a Frisbee in the landing field, and whoever could put their tennis shoe on top of the Frisbee on touchdown, not walk across it, but plant it, mm-hmm. won the pot. Stand-up landing right on the target. Well, these guys are talking about taking that to a new level where real airplanes could do the same thing. So I can, I can do that in my debonair. Once. once. <laughs> um, before you leave the uh, hang gliding story, David, how, how hard was it to do that? How many, how, how many tries did it take? How often could people do it successfully? Uh, you know, some days we... Uh, some days we watch that pot go away really quickly. Yeah. Uh, you know, when the, when the air in the landing field was just right and uh, nice and consistent, and you could watch a couple of guys blow it ahead of you and then adjust your approach accordingly. Uh, but actually landing on a bullseye, uh, ask skydivers. Uh, you know, it's a big game for them, too. Yep. Uh, and I think they have it a little easier. But uh, well, they use a bigger target than a frisbee usually. Well, we used a frisbee, uh, and there were some days where we uh, took all the money uh, that, that no one had won, and went into downtown Chattanooga and uh, used it to pay for uh, pizza and beer. There you go. I want to know though about the time when the person just barely missed the frisbee, kind of kicked it, and the five dollar bills all went blowing down the beach. <laughs> Uh, we, uh, we, we never really had that happen. Okay. Well, all right. So nobody came close, I guess. All right. So this glide, this, uh, this perching airplane thing, huh? Is, is this going to, are they thinking that this is like something that will apply to, to everyday airplanes or just some sort of special aircraft? I can't really answer that question, but, uh, I think the first pass idea on it is for things like UAVs. Uh, okay. Which which can be a little tricky to recover in some instances, because you know we we're, we're familiar with the big ones like the Predator that have uh, landing gear and take off and land from 
actual uh, runways. Uh, but there are other uh, remotely piloted vehicles, unmanned aerial vehicles that are hand-launched or launched by a catapult and then recovered with, uh, you know, a, a net because they don't have any landing gear. And right. Some of these fly off of, off of Navy ships. Right. Uh, so that don't have flight decks. Right. So no, right. the idea is to find a way to uh, design those with uh, aerodynamic characteristics that would make letting them land on a wire or a target uh, viable gotcha. and preserve them for you know the next day's use cuz uh, capturing them in a net's not always a you know a zero sum game it's like jeb being able to land his debonair that way once once and um, you don't want to have to rebuild the bloody thing after every landing yeah right People need to check out this link. Um, even if you're not interested in the perching aircraft thing, you've got to check it out for the video of the owl flying down at the camera. It's just a really awesome video that shows the camera must be mounted just above a piece of, I don't know what, food, meat, bait of some sort. And the owl is doing this kind of perching thing. Not the perching thing. It's doing the kind of claws outstretched, you know, aiming for the target, ready to grab the food with its with its talons. And uh, it's, a, it's a cool piece of video to see this bird flying the way it does. And it's in slow motion, so you can really see it. It's, uh, that, that alone is worth checking out this link. All right. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's really quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. Apparently there's been, what, what's the story with this electronic, electronic charts thing? Um, have, the FAA has clarified the electronic charts policies. Yet again. Now, what, what is, yeah, okay, that's what I mean, yet again. Yeah. So what's different? What's changed, if anything? I don't think anything's changed. Yeah. Uh, I've not seen any regulatory change. I've not seen a new advisory circular. They reissued some information recently that uh, I traced back to last being issued in August 2007, which goes back to an earlier advisory circular. Uh, that basically says, you know, the uh, this was this was re-released. Oh, I don't know about the end of September, uh, and it basically covers the uh, ability of pilots to use almost anything yeah. electronic that can portray and display accurately charts and plates uh and, and sids and stars in lieu of carrying paper mm -hmm. and it goes into the details about what what you have to have on them and and in the and in the higher levels there's three levels of electronic flight bag and the and, and the one most basic for most pilots is going to be something like a, an ipad with a chart package on it right well Je uh, jeb when dave said almost anything you kind of Made a noise. What's your take? Well, no, I, I think I was agreeing with him. Um, the uh, this this is basically longstanding policy at the FAA. Longstanding, you know, being you know three or four years here, where um, the the key thing is not the platform, but the key thing is the information. Um, for example, um, you know, we've talked on the podcast before about. Uh, uh, carrying uh, electronic charts on whether it's um, uh, electronic uh, approach procedures, for example. I use a, a Samsung Q1 that's getting rather uh, long in the tooth um, for that. And, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll actually go spring for the paper uh, um, uh, NOS or FAA charts. Um, the, the punchline mainly involves what kind of operation you're engaged in. Uh, a, a Part 91 uh, uh, VFR or IFR operation, basically, as long as you have the required information in the cockpit, it can be a combination of uh, paper, electronic. It can actually, you know, some of this can be textual. Um, it doesn't all have to be uh, graphic in nature. Um, as you as you move up the, you know. The, the number, the far numbers, or move up into commercial operations in 121, 135, whatever, the requirements change a little bit. Um, and of course, you know, the op specs, you know, start to get involved and, and things like that. Uh, but still, uh, a lot of operators, a lot of commercial operators have gone all electronic. Uh, the, the hardware and the, and the software gets a little bit more complicated. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's okay, uh, quite, quite honestly. Uh, but well, for the average uh, Part 91 operation, um, if you can, uh, if you have, you, you need to have some, inf- <clears throat> excuse me, some information aboard. Um, but it, it can be all electronic, and it can be, you know, a roll-your-own kind of thing. The punchline is just having the required information available. Okay. And, and, and Jeb was talking about as you go up to higher levels, uh, some of the uh, the other two categories of EFBs are designed to either be permanently installed in an aircraft, that's the highest level, or be able to plug into or somehow interface with equipment in the aircraft. Uh, for most of us flying sure. Part 91, you know, it, it can be, boy, it could be a, a, a droid with with all mm-hmm. the charts on it, technically. Yeah. It could be an iPad. Yeah. Uh, it could be your notebook computer if you want to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, uh, technically, you know, if I've got a current database at my 530, for example, the panel man at 530 with a current database, uh, the only thing really missing, as far as approach plates are concerned anyway, the only thing really missing from that is the textual information relative to uh, uh, headings and, and uh, I'm sorry, not even headings, uh, but uh, altitudes uh, to fly for various segments of the approach. And if I have that in some other format, I'm good to go. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, this, uh, is, now, this is just going to get easier, folks. Yeah, yeah Really, exactly. This is just going to get easier, and it's getting cheaper. From, from you know, exactly right. Um you know, my you know, I don't have one yet, but I'm going to be getting one here in the near future. And um, the iPad with four flights seems to be the gold standard right now for for Part 91 operations. Mm-hmm. Um, Jefferson, I think. Uh, well, let's, let's back up. Um, the, the FAA recently, um, without any fanfare or announcement, to my knowledge, um, made started making available uh, its in route and sectional charts. I, I believe sectionals also free of charge. For the yeah. download from it, it, their website, all this stuff now is basically public domain uh, and and free for the download. Um, the, the the trick is finding the appropriate hardware platform on which all this can be displayed. Uh, some of these, um, especially the the sectional charts, but even the in route charts, uh, are rather large files, and um, it's it's difficult to find the um, uh, the hardware with the with the appropriate horsepower to display all this. Um, there are a number of integrators out there. I, I, I use the word integrator, uh, software developers, whomever. Uh, Forflight is a, is a you know again the poster child example these days um, that can be used to display this stuff on the appropriate hardware. And from all reports I've seen, um, it's seamless. People love it. Um, but but the bottom line in all this is you know we've come a long way in the last two or three years and uh, uh, the FAA's you know to the great credit has, has made a lot of this possible um, with the right hardware um, and again some of these files are fairly large but uh, with the right hardware we can do this in the cockpit for for not a whole lot of outlay uh, and uh, it's all good we're not carrying around hyper we're not. Uh, um, you know, uh, um, having to deal with all that sort of thing and, and updates and making sure that, uh, uh, you know, if we're, for example, traveling, um, when the charts change, uh, when, when updates have to be put into place, um, all that should be on the machine anyway. Right. Uh, we're not having to carry two sets of charts, for example. Yeah. Um, it's all good. Sounds good. Sounds good. And, and my favorite part of the whole thing is this very brief phrase, no formal approval is required. Exactly. exactly. And that's one of the things that's really opened this up and made it uh, uh, such a ripe shopping ground. I mean, so many options and so many ways to skin this cat. So, Right. We're, we're from well, the federal one, government. We're here to help you. Yes. One proviso here, of course, is, you know, don't... Um, how should I put this? Don't um, uh, misuse the privilege here. Um, don't think that you can you know, set up a, a Radio Shack 100 in your in your cockpit and, and get everything um, that you need. It's just not going to happen. Um, you need to, and and you also need to, you know, maybe go out on a good VFR day, especially you know if, if we're talking instrument charts here, for example, go out on a good VFR day and make sure all this stuff works before you know you find yourself trying to shoot an ILS to two hundred and a half and uh, you can't bring up the approach plate. 
um, think about this before you do it. And, and you know, as, as we sometimes say, be sure, you know, at the NTSB hearing, be sure you have your ducks in a row. Yeah. Yep. There you go. Yeah. Whack. Our, Whack. Our, our friendly, our friendly federal government has been been quite busy on another another area this year uh, this uh-oh, week. Uh oh. Um, what's the story here with this whole thing about the FAA changing or talking about changing the qualification requirements for airline quote unquote quote unquote co-pilots? Who's up to date on this? What's going on here? Uh, but yeah. Yeah, this comes out of the um, uh, Colgan uh, U.S. Airway or Continental uh, 3407 crash a year or so ago up in Buffalo, uh, where they uh, um, the crew basically lost a Dash 8 and, and crashed it into a house, killing everybody aboard and plus someone in the house. Um, it came out in the investigation that um, um, the, the the captain of the flight was a relatively um, uh, inex- relatively inexperienced in type. Let's put it that way, and the uh, first officer uh, was fairly low time overall. And uh, you know, there's some fatigue issues, there's some commuting issues. Um, this re- has already resulted in um, a policy change. I think it was either I think it was legislation actually um, to um, mandate. Uh, the first officers, uh, believe, and I, I, somebody stop me if I'm wrong here, but I believe first officers now have to have an ATP. Uh, they want, they want 1500 uh, hours and an ATP. They want yeah. 1500 right. hours and an ATP under the, right. the legislated solution. Right. Um, and, uh, now, uh, according to this piece, uh, this is uh, wall street journal, uh, a quote, a high level FAA advisory panel seeking to improve cockpit safety, has called for significantly enhanced training and proficiency standards for airline co-pilots, according to people familiar with the report. This basically is looking to, to uh, impose type ratings on first officers also. Yeah. So this, where this is going to impact folks uh, like us who are you know, more apt to be flying Part 90, uh, 91 Ops in Part 23 airplanes uh, is that you could... Uh, you could be seeing your flight instructor hanging around longer, for one thing, because he's going to have to build more time. Uh, you could be seeing more competition for your flight instructor's time in a flight school uh, while some of these guys come back to earn the uh, ATP that, uh, that they, uh, they may need under this change regulation if it all goes through. I'm not completely sure how this balances out against what the uh, what the Senate has put in the uh, continuing resolution that's keeping the FAA running right now. Right. Uh, this may just be catching up with them. I'm not completely sure here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, it turns out that uh, not only has the U.S. federal government been busy, but uh, the uh, federal governments uh, overseas have as well. Um, and I'm really pretty ignorant about this thing but apparently the some european group agency has made some changes to the way well i'm not expressing this well there are apparently a lot of (laughs) pilots in europe who learn how to fly in the u.s and earned u.s flight certificates which Mm -hmm. up till now anyways are legal to use to fly in europe a very a very familiar example to us is our good friend luca um, mm-hmm. from Italy, all right, who learned to fly over here. As I understand, it has a U.S. license, but also uses it to fly in Europe. And now uh, the Europeans are talking about making it so that that's not allowed any longer. Now, that's everything I know on the subject. Clarify this for me. What have, What's really going on here? You know, there's a lot of head-scratching going on right now why the European Aviation Safety uh, Agency uh, decided all of a sudden to uh, not only... Uh, start the process of, uh, of, of of regulation change that would ban resident European pilots from flying on U.S. licenses in Europe, but would also uh, uh, change the uh, uh, relationship for in-numbered aircraft that are permanently mm-hmm. based in Europe. Right. Uh, and, and kind of throw all of that out the window. Uh, now, it won't affect like airline pilots or corporate pilots or GA pilots that fly across the pond uh, 
to to visit Europe. Right. This is apparently but, resident Europeans who are flying almost exclusively mm-hmm. in Europe on a U.S. Yeah. certificate. And you, you guys like Luca. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's uh, it, it's really raised the hackles of a lot of the uh, uh, alphabet groups on this side of the pond. Uh, the uh, International Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, IOPA, which is affiliated with the, the big I, AOPA, uh, they've, got their, uh, they, they've got their eyebrows all knit and saying, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot here. Uh, they're going to be meeting with, uh, I, uh, with, with the, the ESA folks in, in, in Brussels in the coming weeks to find out Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Uh, but there's an estimated 10,000 European pilots that are flying in Europe on licenses issued by good old United States FAA. Well, let me ask, let me explore it this way. What's the, why, what's the appeal of Europeans coming to the U.S. to earn their license and then fly in Europe? Why do they do that? It's cheaper okay. to fly, to learn to fly here. Yeah. So it's still it's, after it's even with the crazy security hoops that they got to jump through. Yeah, right. It's still it's, it's cheaper. Yeah, it's cheaper. The weather's often better, uh, depending on the time of year, of course, and in location. Um, and there are far less restrictions on where you can go and when you can go there uh, than there might be in Europe. So is it uh, possible that this is just some sort of, you know, um, balance of trade issue? That uh, it, it's it's possible that uh, there's some discussion about. Uh, uh, how this might be an extension of, uh, of um, I don't know, ongoing uh, um, discussions, ongoing uh, 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 battles, if you will, between uh, Boeing and S, for example. Um, the other thing going on here, though, is that uh, um, to, to certainly to our knowledge and, and certainly to knowledge of other uh, uh, clo- observers who are, who are much closer to the situation, uh, in registered airplanes and FAA certificated pilots operating in Europe are not falling out of the sky. Uh, this is not a safety related issue. Um, this is something else. Uh, we can call it feather bedding. Uh, we can call it uh, we can call it anything we want, but uh, doesn't seem to be a, a legitimate policy reason for this change. Well, they're claiming a safety rationalization without offering any justifying evidence to back it up. Uh, and as Jim Gee, said... A it, government does something like that? I'm yeah, shocked. No, that, it never happens here, does it? No, uh, no. Going to Coming to the United States to get a license to go back home and fly, that would be over. There would be no point in doing that. But worse still for those 10,000 guys, uh, aviators like Luca and, and, and others... They're not going to grandfather them in. They're requiring them to get an ESA license by going back through the training. And that's, I mean, that's, it's just absurd. Yeah, that's feather bedding. Uh, uh, that's pure and simple. Uh, I don't know what you know. And Luca would be a good one to talk to about this, and, and maybe we'll get him on the podcast sometime uh, to do this. But uh, um, I don't know. For example, if if if. I'm a European national, and European national. That's a that's a non sequitur. Uh, if I'm uh, an Italian citizen like Luca, and uh, I come to the U.S. and get a bunch of FAA certificates, and I go back to Italy, um, can I can then convert those certificates to EASA or Italian certificates or, or whatever? If so, what's involved? Yada yada yada. What this is saying is that it would be as if they had no flight training, no experience, no log, nothing. Uh, uh, once this proposal goes into into effect, they would literally have to start from scratch. Well, I'll tell you, the whole thing just sounds like a trade war. It just sounds like you know yeah. the European Flight Schools Organization, or some large, or it's part of some larger you know trade war, and they just want to bring the training back to Europe so that so that Europeans spend those mon- that those you know I was going to say those dollars, but you know that those money, euros. Uh, yeah. that I, money I love, over there. I love this phrase. Uh, this confirms IOPA's fears that political chauvinism is taking precedence over yeah. safety and good sense. I saw that's that. A, that, that. Yeah, I, that goes in my lexicon. Yeah, political chauvinism. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as feather bedding their flight training business, uh, I don't think that's going to happen. There's some impact on in numbered aircraft based in Europe that will undercut their value 
Some of them may well be unsellable in Europe. Uh, it, it, you know, not even eligible for conversion to a European tail number. Uh, so that just foobars their value over here, and we know how good values are for business aircraft oh, here yeah. in the states. Uh, I think, in essence, what they're doing is putting a stake through the heart of, of GA. Period, and I'm not so off the beam to think that maybe that's the point. Right. You know, uh, there's so many restrictions, and unless you're an instrument-rated pilot, uh, you're so limited in where you can go, what you can do, uh, that why not just get rid of them all together? It makes it easier and cheaper for everybody else. Uh, the business... Well. The business doers, they'll continue to have their business aircraft. Their people, if they haven't converted, will take the time and pay the money to convert just to preserve the value of the, the, the European registered airplane and their careers. But folks like Luca, uh, I would expect the majority of them to kind of look at this and go, oh, I already learned how to do that and walk yeah. away yeah. rather than yeah. convert. So you, you know, yeah, the upshot of this will be there'll be fewer new pilots in Europe. Well, and, and that that raises the other issue here, of course, which is okay, um, who's going to be flying all these Airbuses then? If if there's not if if there's no GA um, to do the training uh, to to allow people to to move up that ladder and and move into the right or and or left seat of an Airbus, um, where are they going to get the pilots? And that raises an interesting question, too. There, for years, European carriers operated ab initio programs here in the States. Mm-hmm. You know, a year, two years. Uh, and and several still personal, do. Several personal friends of mine started their careers by getting their uh, uh, private commercial instrument, their ATPs here, then going to Europe getting type-rated in the aircraft over there and eventually converting their licenses to European licenses, which didn't require them going completely through training again. Uh, what's that going to do to the uh, European carriers' ab initio programs mm-hmm. if, they, if, if the license they earn here can't be directly converted over there without the, the, the pilot going back through European flight training a second time? That just... That food bar is that completely. I just had a radical. I just had a radical thought. Yeah. Maybe European aviation authorities should get together and try to make it easier to get a pilot certificate in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's some flaw in my logic Sound, here, but sounds I don't know. Awfully, sounds awfully radical to me. It's yeah, very radical. Yeah, I know. I know. You know I, I, I'm sorry. I, forgive me for interrupting. This thing of letting people fly airplanes in the air. I mean, yeah. geez. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, the more the coffee got to me. That's next thing is. you next thing you know, you're going to want to be p- sending pictures through the air. Well, they're exactly right. You know. Yeah. One know, last, you know, to, to people in, in wide flung uh, locations uh, all at the same time. It's just amazing. One last story about federal regulations here, and um, so apparently they've refined the rules, the requirements on installation of ADSB equipment in airports. Oh. Oh, uh, the stupid FAA trick of the week? <laughs> <laughs> not that we feel strongly about it. I guess it, not, huh? David, what's the deal? Well, anybody who's owned an airplane for very long and maybe swapped out a piece of avionics uh, knows that, you know, if you've got a piece of approved avionics, uh, that you, you can put it in the airplane and the mechanic fills out a an airframe alteration, a Form 337, and that covers the installation as long as the system functions in the airplane as required by whatever approval exists for that equipment. Maybe it's a TSO, maybe it's not. But let's say it's TSO'd, like ADS-B stuff is going to have to be. Well, manufacturers have been developing new ADSB equipment the out stuff the in stuff the transceivers the transponders on the belief that this uh, encouragement to install early and convert early was going to be helped along by the same process could be able to buy a new mode S transponder that uh, works with a, a WASP GPS receiver fulfills the ADSB out requirement of the FAA's new rule 
It put it in on a field approval. No, 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 no. The FAA can't stand for that. Can't stand for that. They issued a memorandum on August 30 that sets up a policy change that now says that the uh, uh, installation of new ADSB out equipment meeting the requirements of the two TSOs, 166B and 154C, shall only be installed when approved using the type certificate amended TC or supplemental type certificate process, STCs. That's a hugely burdensome and expensive process for the manufacturers of this equipment to go through to get an STC. In other words, an amendment to an airplane's type certificate that says that uh, you can put in a radio, and that has to be done either on an airplane-by-airplane basis or you get two or three, and then the FAA approves an approved model list, an AMLTC, that lists maybe three or four or 500 airplanes Mm -hmm. that are all approved. Nonetheless, this is a hugely complicated and expensive process and takes months and sometimes years, and I can't figure out reading this or talking to any of my contacts in the avionics business or at 800 independents what this is supposed to be advancing. Jeb, jump in here. I think it's all even more complicated than that. Certainly there are airframe specific issues um, uh, involved in obtaining an STC. But as I read this, um, and I'm certainly willing to be corrected, uh, as I read this, this is not just airframe specific, it's also uh, avionics specific. If you've got, you know, uh, um, uh, an airborne gizmos manufacturing uh, ADSB out uh, system, and you want to interface it with uh, a King or a Garmin piece of equipment, the STC has to be specific to that piece of equipment. I think that's um, part of it too. You're correct, and, and that just is an order of magnitude more uh, complexity, unnecessary complexity. Um, this the, the the installed equipment probably already meets certain standards um, if it's TSO. Um, so putting in another piece of equipment that also is presumably TSO, um, and requiring all of the, the requiring the manufacturer re- requiring airborne gizmos manufacturing to jump through all of these hoops, trying to come up with uh, trying to match its equipment to every conceivable. Um, GPS unit, transponder unit, autopilot unit. I don't know if autopilots are really involved here. Um, but the complexity starts to get ex- exponentially greater mm-hmm. very quickly, very quickly. And uh, putting aside the airframe issues. Yeah. So, so go ahead. Well, well uh, and all that stuff is standardized. Yeah. The, the uh, A-Rank 429 connections and, and, mm-hmm. and a number mm-hmm. of other electronics, those are all standardized. Right. If it works through those, it works through those. Uh, you know, it's it's it, it's like it Jeff gives says. Off, it's exponentially more complicated. It either gives off radio frequency interference, or it doesn't. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Yeah. Is this, let me ask this: though. Is this just our, our the feds being characteristically goofy, or is there an agenda here? There's yes, is the quick answer. Okay. Uh, yes, the feds are being characteristically goofy. For one, uh, as one example. If, if we pull up the, the, this memo and look at it, the distribution list is all internal FAA. This is not a formal public announcement. This is we're going to tell everybody that we need to tell within the agency, but we're not going to you know tell anybody else. Well, we're not going to find out about it. Well, the, the memo was was eventually released, but um, I, you know we found out through AEA, basically Aircraft Electronics Association. Uh, which has some has a very good uh, regulatory affairs guy up in up in D.C. Rick Perry, um, and the, again this memo goes out. It's not, to my knowledge, it's not in the uh, um, the flight standards handbook. It's not been a, a as an amendment to the flight standards handbook, um, and uh, you know maybe it was a matter of you know uh, some inspector goes strolling through an avionics shop and and says, "What are you doing?" Uh, we're installing this ADSB out equipment in this in this uh, Sky Smasher 1000. Uh, well, you you can't do that without an STC. And to my knowledge, there's no STC for the Sky Smasher 1000. 
and in the avion shop says whiskey tango foxtrot are you talking about mm-hmm. and boom they get handed a copy of this memo which heretofore has been un- unheard of unknown and eventually it filters out to aea and, and boom that's how we have it it, it obviously seems pretty crazy that they're going to make it harder to to well, you know install what is basically the the keystone of the next yeah. gen aviation. The, flip, the, the the other the other thing going on here, and and you know God help me if I, for actually saying this, but on, on one level some of this does make some sense, and that is okay. Yes, we need to ensure that installing this equipment. Uh, doesn't interfere with any of the other installed equipment, that it doesn't uh, interfere with the aircraft itself, the airframe itself. Um, and the most formal process the FAA has for that is either the type certificate, the amended type certificate, or the supplemental type certificate process. Okay, I get all that. Um, but what I also get is the FAA is being overly cautious here by requiring uh, um, these these TC uh, level processes f- for approval of in, uh, of this equipment installation. Um, I can see where you know doing uh, a few early uh, installations would get much greater scrutiny than subsequent ones, and I can certainly see the necessity for that. But um, th- this is an open-ended policy. Interwoven through the, the text of this is the concept that, yeah, this is temporary. We'll we'll undo this at some point here, but it's not formally stated. Um, a, B, there's certainly no deadline by which all of this will change. And um, you know, this is just another example of how, you know, one hand giveth and the other hand taketh away. Uh, the FAA, on one hand, is mandating uh, that we that we install this equipment by a certain date, and then they're making it as difficult and as costly as as they physically can to actually comply with their wishes. So, um, you know, you know, rap on the knuckles with a ruler for the FAA on this one. Hopefully, cooler heads will prevail soon. Yeah. David, final thoughts on the subject? Well, I, I want to refer to something that AEA said in their response because this is that I think this is where this hurts more than anything. Uh, the uh, cost increase two hundred two hundred percent to seven hundred percent for light general aviation systems to meet this standard uh, for business corporate aircraft expected to be at the higher end. Uh, as a result, you know, the ADSB component manufacturer should be required to individually STC each and every installation. Oh my God, you bizarre! Uh, this is basically going to uh, hobble any hopes that the FAA had of, of, of early and widespread implementation of ADSB out, because first off. It's just kind of threw the brakes, you know, threw the anchor out on any of the new stuff about to come out, and this, the new stuff that's already out being installed at all. Well, and, and it gets worse because, as as this letter to uh, uh, from AEA states, I'm just going to read these two paragraphs really quickly. It is difficult for our membership to understand why the agency developed a TSO for ADSB if your staff has no faith in the performance or validity of the standard you provided. If products are manufactured to the TSO, and if the initial installations are validated by an STC, similar to the current requirements for GPS equipment, then AEA repair stations are competent to install the equipment. Another, and this is where it just starts to get really sticky. Another unintended consequence of this policy has been the cessation of mode S transponder installations. Your policy, again, say that again, cessations of mode S transponder installations. Your policy addresses the installation of TSO-C166B equipment. All current production mode S transponders are manufactured to TSO-C166. And while none of the equipment currently is produced to level B, we already have received reports from our members that FAA regional certification offices are implementing this policy on ADSB-equipped mode S transponders as well. So you can't even do a mode S transponder without complying with this new policy. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's one of those wonderful, by extension, 
not in the text, but this is just how we're going to interpret it, field right. interpretations, right. that has no basis in the language of the, uh, of, of the uh, text. That's just what managers out in the field have decided to do because the mode S transponder approved under C-166 can have ADSB functionality added to it. They're saying, oh, well, it's the same thing, and it's bloody well not. It's not C-166B. Well, there you go. Uh, it's, it's, It's beyond stupid. Yeah, well, you know. Maybe that's that the sounds title. like a science fiction program, doesn't it? Maybe Beyond that's Stupid. Maybe that's the title <laughs> for this episode. Characteristically goofy, right? And uh, anyways, Works all right. on several levels. Moving on. So uh, before we before we do that, yeah, Jack, is there anything you need to say? Anything you need to do this episode? Um, probably, but I can't think what it is. Have, have you introduced yourself? Never happened. Oh, man. Cool. That hasn't happened in a while. It hasn't happened in a while. That's, that's why I just, I, I waited a while. I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to see if that check, if that box ever got checked. Well, no, I, I even highlighted I, I, I almost asked him about that back about 40 minutes nah, ago and nah, thought, nah. Nah. Um, nah. nah. He's wait, sleepy. Wait. He's sleepy. Okay. Well, never mind. It's too late now. I'll just remain mysterious this week. All right. That's fine. All right. There's no Jack H like our Jack H. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm having breakfast with my dad the other day, and we were just talking about things. And he said he, he gets into the subject. He asked me whether or not I have to get my pilot's license renewed was his term. All right. And I explained to them how you have to get a, a BFR every couple of years and how you have to get your medical updated every now and then. And, uh, you know, and he, he kind of thinks about this for a few seconds and nods his head and says, oh, OK. And then he says, I wonder if Lindbergh had to do that. And I kind of laughed and said, probably not, but but it got me to thinking. And so I'm wondering if you guys know. I asked the forums this question, and I don't think I got any answer. Do you guys know what what when did th- things like BFRs and every other year medicals and things come into uh, effect? Um, you know, did the barnstormers have to go out and get their medical redone every three years? I don't think yeah. BFRs came along until the 50s or the 60s. Actually, the 70s. Really? 70s? Yeah, yeah. I knew it was late. And what what prompted it? Was there some issue or accident, or a lot of times these things come out of a out of incident of some sort? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, that's something we can Google here real quick. Okay, but let's go well, back. There to- was there was a story told to me back in my AOPA days uh, when we weren't that far away from the BFR requirement being instituted. Uh, where there were some indications in the safety stats that some accidents were occurring among pilots who did not fly regularly, uh-huh. the 50-hour the or less a year guy, and that uh, you know automobile drivers have to go back for uh, a, a recheck every few years, or they used to, uh, and maybe they should be doing that with the... Uh, with the uh, pilot community and make them retake the check ride was the initial proposal, uh, which, you know, kind of sent everybody into a, a, you know, a golf tangle, foxtrot Oscar. Uh, and the s- compromise solution was uh, an every other year demi check ride. You go up with a flight instructor and you work on fundamentals and basics and they kind of grill you and make sure that you're up to speed on whatever new airspace uh, rules and categories there are and check your hand-flying skills. Gee, can you still fly slow? Can you still do turns around a point? When was the last time you did a short field or a soft field? Uh, done any hood work lately? With hood work is part of it even for uh, a non-instrument pilot. And if you look at the standards for BFR, they're really, really pretty loose. I mean, they're very broad. There's a, you know, you you can basically just pick whatever you want to do during an hour of ground and an hour of air. And if it satisfies the CFI, you get their notation in your logbook and onward and upward. Yeah. Jeb, did you find anything? Um. Yes and no. I found a, a, uh, a reference that I don't trust stating this went into effect in 1978. 
Um, but that would be uh, BFRs, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, it says section sixty-one point fifty-six is effective as of this one, nineteen seventy-eight. Um, but um, that's not an authoritative source, so I, I need to. Uh, I can kind of take that as a as a homework assignment. When did the whole idea of pilot's licenses be instituted? You know, we're always joking about somebody. He's so old that his pilot's license was signed by Wilbur Wright, you know. Um, right. But, right. But, like, like Dave's. Yeah. So when, when – Damn straight. You know, and, you hear, and you hear stories back from the very, very early days about how, you know, the Wrights taught a lot of people how to fly. But I'm just kind of curious. When did federally, you know, uh, issued flight licenses come into effect, I wonder? Did Lindbergh, in fact – 1920s. So did Lindbergh have a pilot's license, you think? Yeah. He did. Yeah, yeah. eventually. Well, well, Lindbergh's transatlantic flight, though, was when? It was like early 20s? Late 27. 20s. 1927. Late yeah. 20s. Uh, there were licenses by then. Yeah. So. There definitely so. were licenses by then. And early licenses were basically what the institution doing the training chose to issue you so that you could go someplace and say, well, here's my paperwork. I learned to fly from the Wrights in Dayton or from uh, Glenn Curtis in, uh, in, in New York or wherever. Uh, the post-World War One era, the returning pilots, the barnstorming, uh, it's not necessarily historically accurate, but it gets at the, the atmosphere that brought about the Civil Aeronautics uh, uh, Authority. If you go watch uh, uh, the Great Waldo Pepper, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, basically, when the when and this this goes back to the twenties, but basically when the Civil Aeronautics Agency was created uh, at the federal level, um, they came in with a certificate of licensing requirement, mm-hmm. uh, and that again. Uh, you know, feel free to jump in here, anybody. Uh, but uh, I recall that occurred in the twenties. Yeah. Okay. I, I was not around, unlike maybe <laughs> some others on this podcast. I was not around in the twenties, so I don't have firsthand knowledge of this. Are you kidding? I learned to soar from Otto Lilienthal. So. There you go. There you go. Uh, we got a whole bunch of off-field landings of the week on the list here. Let's see if we can touch on a couple of them. Um, from a story in uh, avweb.com, uh, student and instructor survive on bo- board fire. This is just about as scary as it gets, if you ask me. Oh, yeah. Um, an instructor and a student flying a Spartan School of Aeronautics Cessna 172 survived an onboard fl- fire and off-airport emergency landing in Oklahoma Tuesday. Um, Instructor Jade, they see they're doing this. This is why the story exists, so that they'd make me pronounce these last names. Jade Shui, 28, and student Zachary Pfaff, with a P, uh, 26, were confronted with smoke and flames coming up from the floorboard area while on a training flight. Yikes. Anyways, they got on the they got on the radio and uh, and called for help and uh, got the airplane on the ground and they both walked away apparently with what minor injuries? No injuries. Oh, no, second uh, and third degree burns. So uh, there was yeah. a little bit of injuries here. Um, yeah. But they did the, get the, the airplane on the ground on a very scary situation, if you ask me. The picture of the aftermath uh, AvWeb ran um, uh, is a little bit disconcerting. Let's just put it that way. The yeah, picture yeah of the man. Air, uh, of what remained of the airframe, That's that's. Uh, they did a great job. And, and that, that kind of reinforces, um, I guess, two things. One um in-flight fires are nothing to mess around with folks uh if, if you uh you know not suggesting that we nilly-willy uh, overreact um but if you if you verify that you got an onboard fire uh it can quickly get out of control not one reason for which of course well two reasons one you got all this fuel <laughs> sitting on you know somewhere in the airplane um b uh unless you're taxiing or or stopped on the ramp, uh, there's a lot of air going past the, the airframe, and, and all that air can help fan the flames of, of a fire, even if it's uh, you know inside the cabin. Uh, you don't know where it's coming from and, and whatnot. You need to get the airplane on the ground. You mm-hmm. don't yeah. have to put it on a runway. Yeah, any <laughs> air under the tires is too much air. Yeah, let me, let me say this again. You don't have to put it on a runway. You need to get the airplane on the ground. Yeah, yep. The, uh, the emergency checklists for fire in flight are kind of, 
I've never really internalized them. One of them, at least there was for the Cessna 152s, which is probably, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit, the last time I reviewed this stuff, um, this particular part of the stuff. Uh, one of one of the uh, items was uh, uh, find an airspeed that, that, that doesn't fuel the fire or something like that. I forget how they yeah. worded exactly, but it had to do with an airspeed that would blow out the fire, which always struck uh-huh. me as being a pretty vague kind of thing. I don't know. Well, they had to put something in there. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you got three guys sitting around a bar one night, you know, trying to figure what are they going to do to, to fill this white space in their POH draft. Oh, hey, I know, you know, increase airspeed or change airspeed. That'll work. Yeah, yeah. that'll work. That'll work. Anyways, um, yeah. And I always like the idea of fanning the flames even higher in the hope that at yeah. some point they'll give up. I know. Meanwhile, aluminum has one of the lowest melting points of any metal in there. So, uh. yep. Anyways, congratulations to Jade and Zachary for... Uh, for congratulations on surviving. Yeah, keeping yeah. their wits about them and getting the airplane on the ground. That was great. Um, we got another one here that apparently tickled Dave somehow, some way. Uh, had to do with an on-beach landing of the week. And uh, <laughs> what, what about this? That's I mean, this what is... the B stands for. Yeah, okay, I, I got to read the fine print more often. On-beach instead of off-field uh, landing. It's an on-beach landing. Four-seat private plane bound for Panama City was forced to make emergency landing Thursday morning along a wide, the wide sands of St. Joe Beach. Let's see if I can figure out where this is. It's the Walton Sun website it's florida northwest florida thank you okay randy randy oh this is last names this this week i'm I'm sorry i don't mean to embarrass anybody randy crapsey of port st joe was co-piloting on his first training flight in 12 years when he and his instructor ronald jarman were forced to make an emergency landing due to engine problems so uh as as we've said at least he wasn't on fire yeah (laughs) yeah there's that too landing on the beach is a tricky thing i think all of a sudden, the propeller stopped straight up and down. At least he could see it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> at least it was there. Yeah. At least, at least it was still there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the uh, the, uh, the the breaking news thing kind of tickled me because it doesn't show it now. The page has been updated since uh, the the first report, but when it first showed up, it was breaking news. It was very brief, and it just kind of tickled me that hours after the beach landing that they still had a a breaking news thing on there and it's like a breaking scroll down because the 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 old the old lead graphs are still there scroll down all the way to the bottom oh yeah 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 (laughs) but the off-field landing of the week that really tickled my fancy was the one from louisville yeah Uh, that's the next one i was going to go to here this is this is your old stomping grounds you uh, you know this, this street Oh, yeah, I've driven that highway many times. Uh was on my way to and from work uh, years ago when I worked at uh, General Electric's uh, Appliance Park uh, over on uh, southeast Louisville. Uh, the Watterson Expressway, it's like a beltway that goes around uh, a big chunk of uh, the Louisville metro area, intersects uh, Interstate 65, Interstate 64. Uh, and this particular area... Uh, near uh, Louisville's uh, Bowman Field. It's only a, a mile or so away from the airport. Uh, about 18 hours a day is really heavily trafficked. I mean, you'd, you'd be doing good to put a remote control toy airplane between a couple of cars there, let alone a full-size airplane. Uh, this happened really late at night, about 11, 11.30, I guess it was, and uh, at that time of night, your odds of finding some empty pavement to uh, slide the airplane into are way, way better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but as soon as I saw that Watterson Expressway thing, I'm kind of going, "Oh my God! How did they? How did they get on there without getting run over by a semi truck?" So congratulations to that crew. Yeah. And, yeah, and not coincidentally, there were four people aboard that, no injuries. That's true. Yeah. Yes, nice job. It was a Piper PA-28, and uh, the pilot's name is not listed in the story here. So, um, The owner's name, which we don't know whether the owner was the pilot. But uh, anyways, good job to all these people who got the airplanes on the ground safely. Yay, rah. Shout-outs. Let's see here now. Um, we got a, a quick little item in the, that I got from the forums, uh, from the UCAP forums. 
Um, this is from uh, listener Sven. He says, Jack, uh, in episode 207, you were talking about the FAA's WINGS program and how they lo- no longer award you with the actual WINGS. He says, I'm an active participant, and I can tell you that they do still offer you real WINGS. I'm on my second set. You just need to claim them, and Avemco sends them to you. Um, I make my instructor pin I make my instructor pin them on me when I earn them to make up for all the times that he pulled the power in very bad places. So apparently you can request the wings. I guess they don't send them automatically. Um, but uh, if Sven is correct, uh, you can get your little uh, your little wings uh, for uh, successfully completing some of these programs. And uh, that's kind of nice. Thanks to Sven for calling our attention to that. Very cool. Yeah. And then what it's else? It's a very worthwhile program, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. And then... Uh, Jeb, you you speaking of being tickled, you were tickled by the Teterboro uh, video, huh? Yeah, I've been in and out of. I have been in and out of Teterboro on occasion, and uh, uh, it, the place is a. a, a, a I put it charitably, it's a zoo. Uh-huh. Um, and I, there's a lot of corporate or biz jet or fractional fractional pilots out there who uh, uh, obviously go in and out of Teterboro a lot. It's it's really the uh, the, the closest GA airport to uh, to Manhattan, so. Uh, it's a lot of traffic. Uh, it can get congested, and uh, being New York, um, and uh, you know, being uh, um, you know the ATC system we have, and the way the airlines uh, crowd up everything with, with flow control and everything else going on, um, they get significant delays going in or out of Teterboro. So, obviously, some people have a lot of time to kill on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unlike people who do podcasts, right? and, uh, yeah. Unlike people who do podcasts, you're right. You know, oh, dark early on a Saturday morning. Um, but uh, one one uh, uh, fairly enterprising and talented uh, uh, bizjet captain put put together a video um, that he he kind of s- sings and he got some background video and you know, all this kind of thing. But uh, um, to the tune of uh, the Beach Boys, Kokomo. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, we want to leave, but they just won't let us go. Just heard it on the radio. You know, it, it's it. the whole thing is just kind of cute. And I thought very going uh, down to Teterboro. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I love it. It's really yeah. cute. It's really cute. And, uh, um, you know, again, very, very enterprising effort. Any other way, way, way to go, Mike Wagner, twenty-three. Uh, you know the, the other, the other twenty-two Mike Wagners. You're really behind the curve here. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. What, what, kind of makes you wonder what happened to the first twenty-two, doesn't it? Any other shout-outs, Jeb, Dave? No. Uh, could, just a quick tip of the hat to uh, the folks over at uh, Learjet who just wrapped up uh, yet another successful uh, safety stand down uh, here in Wichita. Uh, had to miss it this year, sadly, and uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to be looking for the uh, DVD version. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, I was sad to miss it too. It was a lot of fun last year, but yeah, it was. just didn't fit in the schedule this year, unfortunately. Okay, well, time to stick a fork in this one for sure. Dave Higdon uh, is a. Uh, uh, I know what you are. I just some, 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 <laughs> easy now, son. Easy. We're not, not going to say it out loud. That's... But one thing I know for sure that Dave is an aviation photographer and an aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, avbuyer dot com, aea dot net, uh, aviation safety something or other, uh, Dave Higdon dot biz. Uh, I even show up a couple of places anonymously, so I can't tell you about those or I'd have to kill you. And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, also a brand-new homeowner. But we'll talk about that another day in another podcast. Where can people find you on the Internet, Jeb? Well, unlike uh, Dave, I do remember the URL. It's uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com. Um, and then uh, I also do some work for uh, the aforementioned Aircraft Electronics Association at AEA.net. Um, personal websites, jeburnside.com, and uh, you can also find uh, all kinds of, of tidbits uh, by just Googling me. And, oh, by the way, I'm Jack Hodgson. <laughs> I'm a private <laughs> pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. And you don't need an STC. Not yet, anyways. Thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our excellent show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earl, and to the many other listeners who have created the uh, UCAP disclaimer clips and other fun audio clips. 
We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you were going to say something? Live long, go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. WTF, STC, AM, FFN. Oh, <laughs> yeah.